There's a, a bumper sticker that you can buy, not from the Spirit Rock store, but on the internet. And it goes like this, non-judgment day is near. I had the experience, I was thinking, I had the experience uh, two or three years ago. I was teaching a, I think, a weekend retreat on transforming the judgmental mind. And I think it was around Chico, California. And as I was driving to Chico, uh, on the road, there was a uh, sign that said, Judgment Day is coming. And I thought, they've done such good publicity. (laughs) But it was actually one of those, I think there was an Oakland preacher who had said that the end of the world would come. Some of you may remember that. And I first thought, that's good publicity. So this evening I want to explore the, the nature of the judgmental mind and how we work with it and transform it and go into a little more depth than we've gone into so far. But cover a little bit of the same territory just to clarify further the understanding of the judgmental mind that we have. And I want to also acknowledge that the first day of a retreat, um, no matter really, for most of us, no matter what our background or experience is, can be a challenging one. And we have uh, often what we call the five uh, difficult energies, sometimes called the hindrances, are present. Those include sometimes wanting something or craving something, often not wanting something. (laughs) Then a third is sleepiness, And a fourth is restlessness. And a fifth is doubt. Could be doubt about oneself, doubt about, did I choose the right retreat? (laughs) Or something like that, or doubt about all this. How many of you experienced one or more of those five? Okay, look around everyone. This is important. (laughs) And... uh, you know, there, there are ways of working with it, partly just to name that they're present. Probably most of you know some ways to work with each of these. You know, with, uh, with wanting, we may, again, be mindful, notice it. We may, we may just, from our wisdom, say, this isn't helpful. And that, that sometimes can help. Uh, cre- uh, not wanting having aversion, again, the mindfulness can go a long way and the mindfulness for both of them could involve that mode of mindfulness in which we explore the wanting mind or the not wanting mind and notice it. And mindfulness often by itself, if something is not real strong, can uh, actually lead to it uh, diminishing the strength and sometimes ending. With sleepiness, we again, we first want to notice it. We can, in the meditation hall, stand up. Again, some of us may actually have a back uh, 
backlog of need for sleep. It may be actually skillful to take a nap, get a little more rest. Sometimes it's more about the energy balance. It may be good to take a vigorous walk, something like that. Just get more energy in the system, moderation in eating. Again, many of you have uh, explored this. Uh, very common talks are given on these five and how to work with them. For <clears throat> restlessness, we something like the qigong sometimes is very good to balance the energy. Uh, it can be sometimes the further development of concentration can settle the restlessness. A lot of times, again, the mindfulness, the noticing can play a, a strong role in it diminishing, not being quite so strong. And uh, doubt is sometimes the hardest, especially, you know, the self-doubt can be connected with self-judgment and can be a deep one. And that may be hardest, Some, but it could be to just reflect, if it's self-doubt, just to reflect on what's positive, to bring the attention to what's working. Some, sometimes we focus, we have, the psychologists say, a negativity bias, right? Everyone know that? That's part of the psychological backdrop for this whole retreat. <laughs> you know, we will tend to focus on the negative and a lot of our heart practices actually strengthen the opposite muscle to focus more on the positive, on the heart, you know, a practice. We'll get to practices of gratitude and joy actually help us to tune into what's positive about a situation. So there can be different ways to work with that sometimes to think of one's teachers or inspiring people, inspiring teachers, figures, and so forth, read inspiring books, can be very helpful. So that's the short version of what often would be a 45 minute talk. So um, one of my favorite cartoons shows sort of the way that uh, we can be very inspired to practice until one of these hindrances come. This shows a young meditator saying, today I will live in the moment. But this meditator then adds, unless the moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. (laughs) So here we're encouraging mindfulness and sometimes they're cookies at supper. (laughs) but mostly mindfulness. So a few readings about uh, relevant to the theme of looking at the judgmental mind. First is from the eighth century from uh, Shantideva, who's the the Dalai Lama's uh, author of the Dalai Lama's favorite book, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Uh, And uh, Wonderful book, he says, a crazy untamed elephant in this world cannot inflict such harm as the sufferings of the deepest hell caused by the rampaging elephant of the mind. And then uh, from Mark Twain. Good, he's talking about uh, judgment in a little different sense than I am, but I couldn't resist. This is from Mark Twain. Good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. (laughs) (laughs) And then the last one, 
is also in honor of uh, Yom Kippur. This is uh, from one of the texts in the Midrash, which are like commentaries on the Torah. Great are the righteous, for they transform judgment into mercy. Great are the righteous, for they transform judgment into mercy. So we've defined the judgmental mind, or I've defined the judgmental mind, and really offered a framework that the judgmental mind is complex. Again, that we, in English, and I think in uh, several other languages, there's a sense that uh, judgment is used in multiple ways. And judgment sometimes is used more neutrally, simply to mean some kind of discernment or evaluation. A judge makes a judgment. You know, I gave the examples, uh, an engineer, a group of engineers make a judgment about the level of stability of the bridge or the building that can withstand this earthquake. We, in ordinary English, we would sometimes use the word judgment there. And again, uh, uh, movie critics would, would uh, give the artistic judgment about a film and, a, and aesthetic judgment and so forth. And that's used uh, sometimes. And we're wanting to use, really focus on the judgmental mind even though some people may use the word judgment, meaning judgmental, without clarifying it. But so just to know that there's ambiguity there and that, uh, that some aspects of judgment in ordinary English can be very valuable. And it really points to the way that uh, judgment in the sense of judgmental mind is a mixture of several components. Typically, there can be a kind of a noticing of something some kind of evaluation, and then reactivity. And one can have the noticing and the evaluation without necessarily having reactivity. So one example would be, as a teacher, if I'm working with someone, it's actually very important for me to notice things and in a sense make evaluations. This person, as a meditator, could use more practice, maybe strengthen the daily practice. That's helpful for me to have that evaluation and to notice some things. If I'm reactive about it, the student will immediately notice that, pick up on it, and most likely the relationship will be somewhat poisoned or totally gone, right? We, and we can know that in similar ways as a parent, as a, someone in the helping professions, a teacher, whatever that it's the reactivity which is problematic and connected with suffering. And so the working model here is going to be that we want to investigate the judgmental mind and be able to notice those different elements and find ways to transform the reactivity so we can make use of whatever is wise in what we see and what we how we evaluate if we do that and use that for compassionate purposes. So it's to turn the judgmental mind into discernment and compassion, compassionate action. That's one way to say it. You know, again, we have a very obvious example with something like uh, seeing uh, social injustice. We can often see a lot there. 
we can also be very, very reactive. And this, you know, I've done workshops on the judgmental mind with activists. I wasn't sure whether they would come. But they did, and they acknowledged it's a big issue in our groups. And they, they actually said, we're most judgmental towards other people in our groups. Anyone experienced that? Right, so quite, quite common. And it's an issue, and it's, it's understandable. And we'll, in a little while, I'll point to really one of the reasons it's understandable, and I'll, I'll unpack this in a few moments, is that the judgmental mind is really covering over pain. And so, in a strange way, it's a kind of defense mechanism to not have us feel pain. That, ironically, as I, I think I mentioned earlier, causes more pain in many ways. So I'll, I'll try to clarify the meaning of that. That may be not obvious, but I'll bring that out in, in, what, in what I say. Now, it's also the case that I'm mostly focusing on what we might call negative judgments or aspects of the judgmental mind which are negative, you know, which are critical, blaming, you know, judgmental in a negative sense. There also, I think, are positive judgments in that sense or uh, dimensions of the judgmental mind that are positive. And this would make sense if we think of the core of Buddhist psychology in which there are really two forms of reactivity. One is pushing away and the other is grasping. And there are going to be forms of the judgmental mind in which we grasp. You know, my son is clearly the cream of his high school class. You know, and we grasp onto that. And that can be a kind of expression of the judgment. Now those are mostly not, we don't see that as judgmental, typically, do we? We mostly see the judgmental expressions as the negative, right? But I think the dynamics are quite parallel. And we'll see how that actually is something important because the, the positive expressions of the judgmental mind are often quite hidden. We'll, we'll see some of how that is. Uh, but, but again, in some, some of the forms of reactivity are pushing away. Those are the most obvious. But the grasping is also uh, a form of reactivity. And so that's hardly talked about in people who do books. It's always the negative or critical voices that, and of course, uh, one could say that those cause certainly a lot of suffering, but the others are important too. So we'll be exploring the judgmental mind in terms of judgments both about self and about others. And we'll be looking at judgments that have to do with one's own being, but also some at the way that we internalize the judgments of the society. That's part of the judgmental mind, also not always dealt with. We internalize the messages of the society. You know, probably most obvious around phenomena like gender and race. Anywhere where there's a social hierarchy, those at the upper part of the hierarchy internalize the message and get a positive judgment. We sometimes, I, I like to call this internalized privilege. <laughs> and then those on the bottom side of a particular hierarchy internalize that, and that's what we call internalized oppression. Right? So it's interesting, all of those, so judgmental mind can be there for reasons of family background, experiences in life, but also social conditioning. 
And I'll bring that out a little bit more. So you can see it's actually maybe a more powerful area than we might have considered. That if we want to really work with the judgmental mind, it takes us into these territories. Because we have to see, all of us have internalized a lot, right? From the society and we all have histories where we've had maybe difficult experiences and formed um, judgments on their basis. Right? And we'll be getting into that in the course of the course of the retreat. We want to start with the easier ones, the easier ones to see. So did anyone notice an expression of the judgmental mind in your own mind today? Okay. Very good. And those who didn't, either you had none or they just weren't noticed. Okay. But any, would anyone like to share maybe in one sentence an example of the judgmental mind that occurred to you today? Yeah. I'll never get this. Yeah. So I'll never get this. So it's, it's a kind of self, harsh, reactive self-judgment. One of the interesting things that we'll start seeing by the examples is that the judgmental mind is not only uh, seen in the actual words or content, but it's very much in the tone of voice, the facial expression. So someone can have the perfect words and the perfect non-judgmental words and say them in a judgmental way. I like, there's some... Uh, I sometimes teach wise speech and we use nonviolent communication. There's some wonderful spoofs of people using wonderful, wise language use, but, you know, in a snarky way. And so there's some, maybe at the end I'll, I'll give some links. There's, there are a group of people who do these wonderful spoofs which are on YouTube. You know, that, that kind of bring that out. It's pretty neat. So, so I'll never get this. Uh, others? Please. I actually noticed some of the Yeah. Okay. So th- so we got two judgments for the price of one. <laughs> so I'm what I'm better than these materialistic people. And, can, are you okay if I repeat that? Okay, and that's a horrible thing to say. <laughs> right, so, um, yeah, so there was a, po- uh, very good to notice the pos- so-called positive judgment, and then uh, the, the negative one snuck in. <laughs> okay, uh, but those are, those are everyday examples, right? These occur just in the flow of many of our days. And so, again, we want to watch out for n- the, the noticing of the judgments can, can, it can be a lot to hold because when we start, no, especially uh, we maybe have a little bit less in a retreat setting than in daily life, but it, you know, we, we'll notice it a lot if we really have our radar out for the judgment. Another one, another example, please. Okay. <laughs> Un- yeah, that bird is too loud. <laughs> right, and so I think the humor's helpful, right? That because I could hear I could hear you both having the judgment and then saying something like what? This is 
this is really funny, <laughs> right? And I noticed, I remember um, once I was on retreat here, and it was back a number of years ago when we had a lot of rain, and it was raining for almost every day of the retreat, and I started judging the weather. I knew that was not going to be effective. <laughs> but we, but, but uh, we can notice that. And the, the humor is really helpful, the spaciousness around the, the judgmental mind. Please. Yeah. So a judgmental stance or ambience. Could you give an example of one judgment that was there? I'm so wrong. I'm so it's self-directed. I'm so wrong. Yeah, but just yeah, that that's really it was a feeling. So it's really pointing to one of the qualities that we can feel this, especially with self-judgment, that sometimes when we notice ones that are maybe chronic or very old, subjectively they'll feel more like that ambience. They won't be just one phrase or one sentence. They'll feel, they'll feel like, uh, I sometimes use words like cloud or fog or trance. They'll feel like that sometimes. And so again, partly we're wanting to um, be able to notice judgments and start to feel what they're like. And again, here in the spirit of exploration, right? mindfulness and so forth. Okay, maybe one more, maybe two more, and then we'll, then we'll go on. Okay. Yeah. That, that's right, yeah, yeah, that's great. So I'll just repeat the example. Uh, so correct me if I didn't get it quite right, but watching someone um, filling a water bottle but having some of the water go down the drain, was it? Or? Yeah, and being concerned about water in California, right? And um, anyone ever done anything like that? Okay, look around. Okay, it's, uh, no, I, I'm at our local swimming pool. I find myself doing that. We have a sign that says, no showers more than three minutes. And of course, no one follows that. And I get, so, uh, yeah. And and then you're pointing also to the fact, again, that we're, that the judgmental mind is not the enemy. Our interest is transforming it, not getting rid of it, because it will have often some intelligence, a jewel, something valuable. Here, the perception that being careful with water, of course, it's, uh, that's, that's the beautiful uh, what, uh, uh, core. Uh, and we want to, can I, can I further that value without being judgmental? Of course, that's, our, that's the goal. Maybe last one. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I knew what I was doing was, was what I needed. Yeah. Yeah, so, so in this case, uh, walking briskly, knowing that this was wise and skillful for yourself, but uh, maybe it didn't take the explicit form of self-judgment, but it was close, right? It was, it was really, you know, what do they think? And, you know, maybe it was a self-judgment. Oh, you know, I'm messing up or something like that. Probably close to that, right? And that, that kind of... Uh, self-questioning or something is one of the forms that judgment takes. So we, we have some of the flavor of the, the judgmental mind, right? And again, for each of those, you might listen, where is the noticing, in your case, noticing someone's actual behavior, and then the evaluation, too much water. <laughs> you know, not being, going directly, too much water going down the drain and then the reactivity, right? And so what we wanna do is be able to notice when the judgment comes up, can I really notice those pieces? And again, noticing how judgment comes as a unity, but it's actually complex, is the pointer to how we transform it. Because we can separate, if we do the inner work through the mindfulness and working with the heart practices, we, in the long run, can separate out. And I think the the core of it really is, is that there's typically some pain connected with the judgment, which is beneath the surface. And if we actually touch the pain, we can actually, um, in a way, cl- uh, um, clean up the judgment. So I'll tell a story uh, from my own experience like this. For a lot of years, my main way of practicing with judgments was simply to notice them. You know, when I first started practicing, which was a lot of years ago, I started in my 20s, and I would notice myself being judgmental. And I think, by the way, um, I think my family um, has had that fairly well developed. (laughs) Okay, Okay. I hope that's okay to say. My mother used to say, she she loved uh, talking about the judgmental mind. She said, Judgment's my favorite topic. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so my, my initial practice was just tracking them, noticing them. You know, I would say, sit there, and, you know, and be meditating and say, not really settled, am I? I'm not doing very well. Judgment? Okay. But that person's moving a lot. Yeah, bad meditator. Judgment. <laughs> right. There's a special form of the judgmental mind that takes place in meditation retreats. Right. Right. And um, and then I would sometimes say, "Oh God, so many judgments." And I would be no. And that was my main form. And about um, 20 years ago, I was finishing a period in which I had been very active in the world. I had been part of a graduate school and I had been very active with a group called Buddhist Peace Fellowship and also the co-editor of a journal called Revision, which I had been co-editor of for like 10 years. Very full, and, uh, but, but busy. And I wanted to take a break and um, part of, a large part of that time I did several retreats, including the two-month retreat here. 
And uh, I was working with a, a person who was for many years a mentor and is now a colleague and a dear friend named John Travis. And uh, I was being very judgmental towards myself and I didn't really notice it that clearly, but John did. <laughs> and um, he had me uh, do uh, a practice. And I think I was being judgmental. I, you know, I was comparing myself to other people who I thought had it together spiritually. You ever, anyone ever done that? Okay, it's a, it's a what, occupational hazard of being a meditator, right? And I compared myself to people and thought they were really doing it right. Of course, I didn't know the details of their lives and I was totally projecting, didn't really know. But uh, that's what I was doing. It was pretty harsh on myself. I was also somewhat harsh towards the people in my graduate school, you know, they're not spiritual, they're not, you know, and all that. So um, John had me do a practice, which was very interesting, which is we'll do some version of that practice, I think maybe either starting tomorrow or the next day. And he had me do a practice where whenever I noticed a judgment, I would actually be aware of it and see if I, if it stayed for a while, I would be aware of it and then bring my attention to my heart and just stay there for a while. And I some, would do a similar practice at the end of every sitting at, at the retreat. I would stay for five or 10 minutes and I'd bring up judgments that had been there in the last 24 hours or 48 hours. And at the beginning of the retreat, I brought one, ones in that were related to the past few weeks and years and so forth. And I was, um, I would bring the, pra- the uh, judgments to mind as if I was reliving them, kind of replay them in my mind. And then this, this was the instruction. And then bring my attention to the heart. In other words, shift from the verbal level more to the body and the emotions. And sometimes, it took a while, but some, you know, sometimes I would just notice my heart tight. Right. Sometimes I would notice um, um, just sensations. Sometimes I wouldn't notice anything. After a while, this was after maybe a week or two, I started noticing that when I explored a judgment and then brought my attention to the heart, fairly soon I would feel something painful there typically a painful emotion. And I started doing, I was doing this also in the moment. I remember uh, being on the lunch line where judgments have been known to occur. (laughs) And I'd be on the lunch line and I would be, uh, I remember one meal, they were serving tacos and there were a lot of condiments so, what that, and it was also raining. And I was near the end of the line. Okay, you got the picture? And so, so ba- and when there are a lot of condiments, one moves slowly through the line. And I was sitting there saying, they should get it more together in the kitchen. Right, you know, that kind of, that kind of judgment. And I, start, I did the practice which we call the dropping down practice. And I brought, I was going from the grumbly mind about the lunch line and brought it down to my heart. And I just felt, oh, I'm impatient. 
which I would call it's a form of unpleasant experience or more generally we call it a form of painful experience, not hugely painful, not physically painful for the most part, but uh, an unpleasant experience. I started doing that all the time and I started uh, experiencing that with every judgment that I would really stay with and explore, beneath the surface there was something painful, typically a painful emotion or something there. And when I actually stayed with the pain, painful emotion, sometimes physically a little painful, and stayed with it for a while, like in that example, when I stayed with the impatience and just hung out with it, I wasn't judgmental anymore. You know, I could recognize that there was impatience and so forth. And I practiced this after the retreat. I remember I was, it was, that was the time I was starting to do more teaching at Spirit Rock and I was a little more, what, um, not as confident with my Dharma talks, right? Um, although others probably couldn't tell, but I knew. And, and so I would do a talk and I would, I would sometimes start judging myself. Rah, 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 rah. You, didn't, you know, should have prepared more. Rah, rah. And then I would do the dropping down practice and I'd go to the heart and I would go to sadness and uh, I'd be, oh yeah, maybe it would have been nice to prepare more, but I did my best, I had a lot happening. But I touched the sadness, stayed with it for a while, and the judgments dried up in that instance. I'm not saying this works like that for some of the deeper stuff, but for that, uh, I started to, you know, I started to see a few things. One of them was that there was some kind of pain beneath judgments that was driving them. I come to call it some kind of unacknowledged or unprocessed pain. Sometimes that pain can be ancient and go back to childhood or family experiences. Some of our you know, most repetitive ones can even go back to trauma, right? And that, that's a different order. But in, this, in these kind of uh, judgments, I would find myself able to touch the pain and I came to see that the judgmental mind was a way not to experience that pain or that unpleasant experience. In other words, it's a kind of defense mechanism. Again, like I said, a strange defense mechanism because it can cause a lot of suffering. But that's what I came to see and I, I offer that to you. See what you find. But that's what I have found. And it also suggested a way that if we can actually touch that pain with compassion and care, it's a way of cleaning it up. And I think even for very, that's a formula even for that very deep pain, even for something like trauma. There, there are ways of working in that way. And so that, that started to uh, open things up. And so um, I offer that as part of, also part of this model. So we can, we can start to see this uh, range of judgments. We can see that there are judgments that are just about my own personal experience and well-being. There are also judgments that we have about the larger social and political um, world. You know, there's a, there's a book that I found about the state of political discourse called uh, I'm Right and You're an Idiot. <laughs> Subtitled The Toxic State of Public Discourse and How to Clean It Up. So we know that, right? There's 
You know, I, I once worked in the U.S. Congress when I was a college student, and it was it was a little bit rough, and it's gotten worse. But just the, you know, I have not been invited to teach on the judgmental mind in the U.S. Congress. <laughs> you know, it would be would be good. So we will see. We have we actually have at least one congressman who regularly does retreats here. Uh, Tim Ryan from Ohio. Yeah, some of you know him. He wrote a wrote a book on mindfulness and the political world. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. Can let's let's. If it's a question of clarification, that's okay. If it's a larger question, let's keep it for tomorrow morning. How to work with that. Yeah, let me see if I can weave that in, the question of public discourse. And we're going to start with what's most easy, most accessible. We're not going to resolve ju- the judgmental mind in public discourse by the end of this retreat. <laughs> okay, so let's see where I am. Maybe just one thing to add that's partly related to public discourse, a little bit more on, we've talked, we've brought out some sample judgments. And it's also, I wanted to say a little bit about what I said earlier, that we also internalize the dominant messages of the culture. You know, again, we see this most obviously with gender, race, sexual orientation, maybe age, educational level, religion. We see this to, we see this to a large extent. And we've all, we've all internalized this. And so we have, we have different judgments that are there, um, a lot of which are semi-conscious or unconscious. Some of you know the research that's happened uh, on what's called implicit bias. How many people know that work on implicit bias? Very interesting, which points to how we internalize the messages uh, about, you know, again, about groups that are uh, in terms of a given social hierarchy that are higher or lower, and everyone internalizes the message, including those who are lower. You know, that they find that implicit bias in favor of the group that is higher is there both for the, peop- the group that's higher and the group that's lower, right? And something that has to be worked through. I've, um, you know, I've had friends who've been, who are African-American, who've been in groups on internalized oppression. Were, um, Shahar, were you in the group with Maasai? Um, it was in the, a while ago. <laughs> the uninternalized oppression. Yeah, maybe it was. Yeah, it was, it was, it was in meeting in the East Bay. But anyway, um, one, one, this is part of the horizon of the judgmental mind. And some of you know the very famous um, experiments that were done from the late 1930s to the 1950s called the doll experiments. How many of you know the experiments with the dolls? That th- These became very important for the Supreme Court ruling in 1954 uh, uh, outlawing separate but equal facilities, segregated facilities. And these were the experiments where they took African-American children 
this is again from the late 30s to the early 1950s, aged three to seven. And they presented them with uh, two dolls. One appeared white, one appeared black. They said, what is the nice doll and what is the bad doll? And the African-American girls pretty uniformly said the nice doll is the white doll and the bad doll is the black doll. So that's, that's heartbreaking, right? Very young children already have that message at age three, age four, and so forth. And, and then sometimes they would ask them, which doll is like you? And some of them could answer it and some of them couldn't. Some of them refused to answer it. And so that, again, those experiments were instrumental for the 1954 Supreme Court ruling. It's quite, it's quite, quite well known. And so there's that, there's that level of internalization. This is from uh, Margaret Cho, the comedian. People know Margaret Cho? Okay. If you are a woman, if you are a person of color, if you are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, if you are a person of size, if you are a person of intelligence, if you are a person of integrity, then you are considered a minority in this world. (laughs) And it's going to be really hard to find messages of self-love and support anywhere, especially women and gay men's culture. It's all about how you have to look a certain way or else you're worthless. You know when you look in the mirror and you think, oh, I'm so fat, I'm so old, I'm so ugly. Don't you know that's not your authentic self? But that's billion upon billion of dollars of advertising, magazines, movies, billboards, all geared to make you feel shitty about yourself so that you will take your hard-earned money and spend it at the mall on some turnaround cream that doesn't turn around shit. Pardon pardon my language. (laughs) When you don't have self-esteem, you will hesitate before you do anything in your life. You will hesitate to go for the job you really want to go for. You will hesitate to ask for a raise. You will hesitate to call yourself an American. You will hesitate to report a rape. You will hesitate to defend yourself when you are discriminated against because of your race or sexuality, your size, your gender. You will hesitate to vote. You will hesitate to dream. For us to have self-esteem is truly an act of revolution, and our revolution is long overdue. That's from Margaret Cho. So we'll, this will be a theme that will continue during the retreat, but that's part of the, part of what we have, um, we're sort of taken in, you know, in, in different ways. And a lot of it is, is unconscious or semi-conscious. And of course, we also have the judgmental mind in our spiritual practice, thinking of ourselves as spiritually uh, good, bad, indifferent, or so forth. Um, you know, when I, I've sometimes taught our longer retreats here, and I've encountered people who've done years and years of practice, but maybe haven't dealt with the judgmental mind, and it's still present for some people because it's so deep. I remember reading, meeting one monk, 30 years a monk, and I asked him, what's your cutting edge now? And he, he said, you know, very modestly, I find I really want people to like me, right? There was some way that there was some 
something there that was not worked through. So it really can be um, it's something, I, I think of it sometimes as a really important area that if we don't work it through, it um, is harder to go to the depths. That's one way to talk about it. So it's really a crucial, crucial area to, to, to work with. So my mother always used to ask, what's wrong with being judgmental? Why not? Right, and I was reflecting on that and my, my sister, uh, Liz, went um, several years ago to Atlanta and she went to the um, center honoring Dr. King. And um, she was looking for something in the gift shop for me to bring back and she found a uh, cassette tape with the title on judging. A little known sermon that Dr. King gave in 1967, more or less on the same area that we're covering on transforming the judgment of the mind, but using different language. Using, he, he would use the language of Christian love. And it, it brings out again, sort of an answer to my mom's question, what's wrong with judging? Um, it's the reactivity which is the problem. And for Dr. King, he said, uh, he, he said, because he, he was unpacking the statement of Jesus, do not judge lest ye be judged yourself, right? And trying to give the meaning of that. And he, he actually said, of course, it's very important to be critical of, in his example, of racists and people who are doing negative things. Very important. And, um, However, he said, judgments of others bring a lot of dangers. He said, they're often based on very limited knowledge of others. We often don't really know what we're talking about, but that, that would be a characteristic of reactivity. And it can lead, he said, to self-righteousness and rigidity, the problem of the judgmental mind. Again, he's saying that, I mean, in my language, you would say it's valuable to bring out the discernment and express that. But he, and he's saying basically, if you don't, you have to uh, convey your judgment with love. That, that was his way of talking about it, which more or less, I, I translate that into something very similar to what we're looking at here. In other words, to use the discernment without reactivity. So we want to combine the insights, he said, of judgments with love. Okay, so given all this, how do we practice with, with the judgmental mind? And we've been talking about a variety of ways of practicing. I've generally given the suggestion, and we've given the suggestion, that there are two main modes of transforming the judgmental mind. Sometimes I call this the, um, what, the direct way to transform judgments and the more indirect way. And the, the direct way is to work with mindfulness, to explore as, as we were doing this afternoon, to, and then later in the week, we'll find ways to try to go beneath the surface, sometimes to find that pain which might be driving judgments which is beneath the surface, and sometimes not very accessible. Right? Something far in the past isn't going to be very accessible, but there are ways of opening to it. 
So there's this direct way we go into judgments, we're mindful of them, we study them. Ultimately, we can go deeper, very deeply into some of the hidden roots of the judgmental mind where we can transform them. And we'll explore all of that at this retreat and how to work with that, with that, with that deeper level. We're starting where we experience the judgmental mind just with the uh, judgments that occur just like the ones mentioned here. We want to, that's where we start. We start with wherever, as I think uh, there's a book by Pema Chodron, didn't she say, start where you are? Very good suggestion. And so we start with the kind of judgments that we're finding. And we have this direct way of looking at them, working with them, exploring them, what's it like in the body when they stay for a while, and so forth. Later, we'll start doing the dropping down practice, going to the body and the heart, which is the doorway into... Uh, going beneath the surface, okay? And then we also have the second way of practicing, um, which is more indirect, which is developing these more awakened qualities. We particularly focus on the heart qualities. Again, the motivation there is that partly this gives us the balance to go, if I'm correct about um, judgments being driven by pain, going into the territory of judgments, is not easy, right? Especially with some of our chronic judgments. So we need to have a certain balance, which we get with by spending a certain amount of time with the heart practices. I remember working with someone who was doing a lot of deep work, going to family gatherings, working with judgments related to family gatherings, which is sort of level two or three, <laughs> okay? And she came back to me and she said, oh, it's really, really hard. And I'm feeling, getting a little imbalance. It's just so hard. There's a lot of pain there. And I said, okay, a month of joy. <laughs> right? And so we need that sometimes for balance. Sometimes, again, we use it as an antidote. We need to have a repertoire of what happens when we have judgmental mind in the middle of the night or it's really harsh or even here on the cushion. We, we need to have tools that help take us from being stuck. Because when, things are, when the judgmental mind is too strong, we can't really be mindful. It has us in its grip, so to speak, and we have to have ways to move out of that. And so a practice like metta or maybe compassion are ways that we can ease that strong judgmental mind. There are other ways as well, maybe talking to a friend or being with beauty and so forth. And then thirdly, we, were, we use these, we hang out more with the awakened qualities and we actually slowly, we could say, shift our center of gravity so that we have more the sense that our true nature, our deeper nature, isn't really connected with the judgmental mind. But it's actually more as an awake being. And that's a, that's a shift which occurs. And the heart practices and developing mindfulness and our practice as a whole will slowly shift our center of gravity. And it's interesting, I was talking with uh, Heather Sundberg with whom I taught this retreat for a lot of years and we were just talking and we said, what has been most important for you in the transformation of the judgmental mind? Going directly into them and working with them, transforming them or shifting the center of gravity? And we thought both are necessary, both are important, 
but we both tended to think maybe the shifting the center of gravity. <laughs> that because it's it's sort of like when you shift the center of gravity, the judgmental mind becomes less of a big deal. Does that make some sense? So it's interesting. So both of these approaches are really crucial. And part of, I think, the skill of practice is to ask oneself, what do I need right now of these two approaches? Just like the, my student who was getting a bit overcooked with the judgments. Well, for, for her, going to the more indirect approach, developing the beautiful qualities, very appropriate, right? And maybe we've done that a lot and we say, okay, I'm ready to go be with the judgments. Right? And so there's, there's a, a lot about how we really find what works for ourselves and become, ultimately we become very much our own, our own teachers. So let me just finish up with a few things. I think it, it could be clear that as we work with the judgments and transform them, particularly in the more direct mode, we become better able to use the intelligence of the judgmental mind. As we transform the reactivity with mindfulness, with the heart practices, you know, we can tend to work through our own judgments so that we can actually make use of whatever is valuable, make use, you know, over time, make use of that insight about water or something about social justice, or as a teacher, her helper, her parent, we notice things, how can we use those in a way that doesn't cause harm? Right? That's really what we're aiming at, to, to transform the judgmental mind so that we use the intelligence of judgments, we don't throw them away, we use the intelligence, but within the framework of being compassionate in our action. And then we shift the center of gravity so that we have the more awake qualities, mindfulness, metta, equanimity, be stronger. Sometimes this can happen quickly. Sometimes it takes a while. Yeah. But it, it, it's something, this is, that's really the, the vision. And one of the, one of the, uh, ways that we want to support you all is by having follow-up groups again after the retreat. Because the sustained work with this is really what's crucial. A lot can happen in a retreat and really crucial to have a long-term vision. And so we want to support that and we'll talk about that again later. So let me finish with two poems uh, to end. The first is by Pablo Neruda from Chile. And this is something about the the aspect of mindfulness, of staying with the judgmental mind. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Should I say that again? It's rich. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience.
And then the second poem is by Antonio Machado from, from Spain. And this, this is from the 30s, I think, 1930s. And this is about the process of transformation. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt that I had a beehive here inside my heart. And the golden bees were making white honeycombs and sweet honey from my old failures. <laughs> there's that sense that we transform where there's pain and difficulty and it becomes intelligence and wisdom. That's transformation. I dreamt that I had a beehive here inside my heart and the golden bees were making white honeycombs and sweet honey from my old failures. So let's just sit for a bit. So thank you for your kind attention. And we have about uh, half an hour. And we'll come back for uh, the last sitting of the day. And uh, we're going to have a little bit of music, Eve. We'll have a little bit of music and probably not go the full time. Right? Is that okay? So it'll be shorter, uh, be 15 minutes, maybe a little bit more. Okay, so it'll be shorter if you want to come back and should be a lullaby before we sleep. <laughs> okay, so thank you again for your attention. And I'm going to take a little time to collect everything so you can, don't have to wait for me.